You're listening to Very Loose Women. You're listening to Very Loose Women on uh, Resonance 104.4 and podcast. Okay, so first let's kick off with a celebration or frustration. I'll start. My celebration is that in about 9, 10, 11, 12, three hours, my sister, who has just brought with her husband, uh, her partner, a car, is driving down to South London. She lives in North London with her 11-month-old baby and we're going to have lunch together and I just can't wait because I saw her briefly in a park in Hoban about I don't know a month ago when I cycled up there but lockdown's been really tough for not seeing my niece grow and seeing my sister who's like one of my best friends so uh, I'm so excited I really I can't describe that more (laughs) what about you I guess celebration coming out of frustration the whole launching a book during a pandemic thing is a bit kooky festivals are off bookshops operating in changed ways but one thing that has happened is a lot more digital or virtual events and it's just the kind of conversation that is is so enjoyable to have it's really been a pleasure to get to do that and I guess I'm pretty happy that people have made that happen despite the circumstances so a real a real pleasure I'm Leo, and that was Joe Lennon, the author of a collection of short stories out in the UK since the 23rd of July. It's called In the Time of Foxes. Here's my conversation with Joe about the book recorded on Sunday morning over Zoom. There's a sort of leitmotif going through it of foxes. That's the main thread between the stories. But I feel like, is there any way that you would want to describe the book? Well, I like what you said, actually, the whole leitmotif thing. I'm a bit sniffy about themes when it comes to short story collections um, because inevitably, surely, that would end up being a bit artificial. The nice thing about the, the foxes as a leitmotif, as you say, is that there's, it's, you know, there's so many kind of different ideas or directions in which you can take that that it never felt constricting at all for me and yeah I mean there's foxes in there sometimes literal sometimes it's an illusion or just a a kind of glance really but ultimately it's it's a it's about it's about people and relationships and life and work and and all the rest of it yeah that definitely comes across one of the big questions I wanted to ask you was the motivation for writing in the time of foxes you've been plowing away since I first met you when I was like in my early 20s So my question isn't so much like what made you keep going throughout those years, though I am very curious about that. Um, It's more, why did you, why did you want to write this one specifically? As you say, I was plowing away for the most of that, uh, for the most part on a novel actually. And I reached a real impasse. I had an agent for that project and there were all these, you know, successive drafts and notes. And it was just this really involved drawn out process and I was having enough success with it to think oh yeah this is going somewhere and I could kind of keep telling myself that but the truth was is that I'd I'd reached a real stalemate with that with that project and eventually the agent said look you need to find someone else to take this forward and that was a kind of prompt for me to set it aside and I didn't have enough emotional energy to decide what I was going to do with it to say to myself oh I'm going to dump this but what I was able to do is say, you know what, I'm just going to just going to pivot, do, work on these stories, which I'm actually excited about. And I think there's something there and that provides a way to be a bit more uh, experimental, to have a bit more fun and do something that feels to me 
fresher, more immediate, a bit more conversational, a bit more contemporary. Um, I got to a point where I felt like some of my best writing was happening in my WhatsApp WhatsApp chats with friends. And so I thought, how do I do something that approaches that over there instead of this other thing over here, which is really worked over and in some ways, you know, might have beautiful moments, but can also somehow feel a bit dead on the page. Uh, talking to someone about how I I don't read a lot recently, but I meant I don't read a lot of novels, but I, as my job as a, like I'm a journalist, so I have to read a lot of articles. I write a lot, both to friends, like you say on WhatsApp. Um, I should say for listeners that the club that we know each other from is called the Failed Novelists. And I've had two Failed Novelists on before, Selena to talk about looking at um, ecstasy, which is reading the future of, I guess, specific questions in sheep's guts. Um, and I've had Claire Fisher on as well to talk about her book, All the Good Things. You're the first one to say I had a writing project and I didn't finish it, which is very fitting for the failed novelist. So congratulations on bringing it up. I'm grateful for that. So in terms of your methods, you spoke about WhatsApp just then. How did you how did you go on to that next step? But how do you how do you build that level of credibility? These are quite like short. These are, they're they're short pieces. I don't know, like 10, 15 pages, fully fleshed out main character, like very 360 on on that one. And then also these like very different universes each time, sometimes many different like locations. My big question was like, how much of it is real to you? Like how much of that have, has you, have you lived? Because it's very convincing. Well, I'm glad you think it's convincing. I think that um, my natural inclination is to want to build a really convincing milieu, a sort of time and place. And short stories, I think, often do that very well. I don't mean me, I just mean in general. Um, so that might be, you know, you're on this um, trip, road trip on the Atlantic coast of Spain or you're um, with a lawyer in northwest London, you know, getting bailed up by one of his rougher clients and I always start with something that I've had some experience with of that time and place and I wouldn't really embark on a kind of conceit for a story if I didn't have that to begin with so there's a personal connection there for the time and place the story in terms of what drives that character wise might come from somewhere else altogether and so it's never just one thing and then then I'll, I might layer on additional research to fill out someone's professional identity or world or so on so that, that there's a bit more depth there to, to make it a bit more convincing. So it's, I start with something, a bit of intrigue, layer things on where I need to and what's really important for me as well is to find what kind of story that I'm trying to tell and once I have a, a kind of extended set of notes for a story, I'll say, step back and say, oh, aha, it's kind of, you know, this is this is a tragedy or this is, you know, someone, you know, maybe getting what they need rather than what they want. You know, there's sort of archetypal story forms that, um, and then I'll go back and kind of prune everything and shape everything in the light of that so that's all kind of, um, geared to to telling that story what got me was also the nuance in the character's thinking like the grappling with like complex questions in the second one um so there's this character Paul who is 
a tutor and I've done tutoring in, in those sorts of contexts. So it was, it was so well done. It's like in both circumstances, like these really ambiguous questions, like um, that you ask yourself of like, often like what is the right thing to do but like how 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 am I all right with this like and it's something like it because because you are that character while you're reading it um it's something that you're faced with too and it really gets you thinking it's almost got I don't like this word a lot but it's got like a philosophical bent I guess and it gets you thinking about your decision making that's what I mean um how did how did you approach that bit did you have like a question that that person needs to be asking or was, did it come like naturally out of the situation? Uh, well, I think, you know, to kind of bring this down to earth for for people who might be listening, that the situation with Paul in that story, The Invitation, he's, um, he's an English tutor who's working for a wealthy oil exec in Moscow. And he um, has a bit of a man crush on his boss, Nikolai, but then this these feelings kind of shift and turn into something a bit more complicated directed towards... Nikolai's girlfriend Daria so um, you know complications ensue and I think you know the intrigue about Paul is that he he's not fully known to himself he starts out as someone that we kind of identify quite closely with as Mr. Nice Guy Mr. Ordinary he sees himself in that way he presents himself in that way and then as the story goes on there start to be little clues here and there that actually maybe there are other things at play but you know I think there has to be that element of surprise as well and it's I guess it's one of my favorite kind of kinds of surprises where a character is not fully known to themselves it's a bit of a kind of um that's a kind of Chekhov trick I feel um but it it gives you room to move and it, it it gives gives you the element of surprise I think that's definitely one made me want to read more Chekhov. It's also reading this, it has made me want to write again. And I, I just think that that's such a, it's, it's a really wonderful thing to like confer. So I'm grateful for that. Well, can I just say on that, I mean, the wanting to write again thing and, and reading fiction again, I really get it. I, I, I had some serious ill health a few years ago. I had cancer treatment. I had two rounds of chemotherapy. And at that time, I just became so, so bored with really you know, well-intentioned literary novels that were just really ponderous and I just ultimately could not care. So I, I get it. And I think we're at a time now where people have a lot going on. There are a lot of real distractions, not in a kind of trite sense, but like real things happening in our lives and in the world. And fiction is a bit of an ask. And I think fiction has a job to do if it wants to compete with the the appeal of Netflix storytelling, which frankly is often very, very, very good, which is that you have to capture someone's attention and give them a reason to turn the page. And I think that if you can't do that, then just it's just an exercise for yourself as a writer and that no longer interests me. Yeah, there's there's definitely a demand and empathy from your stories that I think... I watch a lot of Netflix and I watch a lot of reality TV as well. Like there's a lot that I really enjoy and that I feel um, 
like I, I also like a lot of things that are very rooted in reality. But to be honest, I got a lot of that from your book. And I think that's why one of my first questions are like, what part is real? Like that was that was like one of my first when I'm reading, I'm like, how much can I use this to make my own decision making in the future? You, you know, like because this these are like, you know, and so it's always good to know like which which parts I can treat as like motivation for decision making or something and if it's reality tv i know so much is edited and stuff but i just feel like there's more grasp you know at humanity um than than when it's um fictionalized and i tend to watch like more more documentary and reality than than other well i think i just have to say that i have to be a little bit coy about my inspiration um for for different stories it's just ultimately it's you have to protect your sources, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not forcing that out of you. It's fine. No, it's, I think you've given a good description of like having that first inkling. And I think that's so important for me as a reader to know that that's there. And I think when I was reading the stories, I felt that. I did feel that there were like there was reality at the core of it because I know that if I didn't feel that, I would have lost interest. So like, I know, I know that it's there. And I'm like... When you, if it's just saying like when you compare it to Netflix or something, like you are in competition, like from my own time, you're on competition with that. And, um, and it's like a very real threat to reading. And yet what I got from reading those stories and it is this complexity and nuance that I talked about earlier. I don't get that from those shows. I, and I don't get that from, from a lot of the TV that I watch either. As you say, if there's that, if that, if we come away feeling like there is some element of truth in there that's a larger truth that speaks to us as humans, then perhaps when when it goes well, reading can let us come away with a kind of enlarged sense of our own lives and and what we're doing here. I've been thinking about that in terms of this book. Um, it's very cheesy uh, to say this, but. Uh, when people talk about books being nourishing like I I got that but I hate that term so much or fulfilling or something they're so empty these terms I feel but what I meant by that is it gets you relating to something and then applying it to yourself and then moving on like it does that but it's just all of those terms to describe books in that way are just really disgusting especially the food related ones they are disgusting I do think you have to give a reader something uh, so there's a kind of idea of giving in in that for me, but that's a kind of really, I mean, it's it's however way however we put it. I I agree with you. I agree with the sentiment, and that's something that I think that you should should aim at. On in terms of methods of survival, one thing that I want to bring up is sort of thematically. One, do you feel that that does link the stories, and what what do you think that means? For you and for the characters? Um, it's something that started to emerge when I was writing these stories. I wrote a story called Day Zero, set on a Mars-like planet. And it's about a guy named Sebastian who he's having some problems that in some way mirror my own experiences um, with cancer. And so this turned into a kind of story about him being kind of really annoyed uh, about having to go on this kind of search for, you know, alternative remedies. Like he was just, he saw himself as a kind of cynic and he really didn't want to be forced to take on that mantle because it just didn't really suit his idea of, his, of self. Um, 
and uh, you know he's so this is a kind of story about Sebastian sort of resisting moving on he just is kind of stuck and um, so I guess Sebastian needs to grow in some way in order to survive um, and and kind of cultivate a different different way of living and a different mode of operating if he's going to um, beat the odds so to speak so um, that story inevitably has a kind of survival theme and it's also overlaid with the whole question of the survival of the human colony on this planet in which he's living so there are there are survival themes there and then when I started to write some some more of the stories like in the time of foxes the title story which is about um, a woman living in Hackney who has a fox problem in her garden um, then these foxes started emerging urban foxes in this case and and foxes are this um, quintessential survivor really so then this kind of started to be a kind of repeat interest in some of the stories. I find that when um, I was writing that you, when you look back, you're like, oh, it's obvious what I was trying to tell myself. And actually, you know what? I, I, Ellie and I started, so my partner and I started doing these writing exercises before bed a few months ago. So we'll set each other a three and we just have to write for like the next like three minutes and then we go to sleep. And there was one which is like, a utopia or something and it ended up being about like what had gone the most wrong in our life <laughs> because but we didn't do that on, on on purpose but you write it and then it's sort of it like leaps out at you and you're like whoa like I was just writing a random story I didn't see that coming so it really it's it definitely offers you like another way to reflect and to help you like process a lot or at least I say you I mean me for that I guess a survival thing in itself so that that fits is it is was it a like a was it a survival mechanism for you like is it a thing to help you get through the day interesting question a lot of people you know when I was sick they were like oh you know writing it's like therapy and I would think oh you know is it not really it's this thing that I kind of feel somewhat compelled to do and I don't always enjoy it I find it intensely satisfying and to have written and you know that answers something in me to do that I don't know that I find it therapeutic um so my partner's a writer as you know and like for me like writing has always been about like pushing stuff out um and like making me aware like if I think about why I've written in the past whereas for her it's a completely different relationship where she's just like she knows she has to do it she says it's the only thing she can do and then then it happens I mean, one one thought is this: the the enjoyment I took from writing these stories was the en- kind of enjoyment I think that you could get from doing or solving a puzzle of some kind. There's a kind of exercise to it, and you have to put the right pieces in the right places, and it doesn't work until they fit, and then when they do fit, it works, and and that's really pleasing. Did you have some that didn't fit and you had to trash? Oh, early on I had some that, yeah, didn't fit and I trashed. And then once I had the theme, the the fox motif in mind, I wrote about two-thirds of this book in the space of five months. It was like something clicked and then, you know, I, I worked and worked and I, I really had quite a good time. When you talk about the jigsaw... They're like competing metaphors in the first one, in, in the in the t- titular one. Um, 
and they just end up slotting together like exactly like you're describing where you're like did not one did not see that one coming <laughs> I don't want to give anything away yeah it was clever I don't they're two very different stories happening in tandem and then like and it wasn't even when I finished the story that I realized the link it was about like couple of weeks later to be honest like or like a week and a half later I like a, a testament to my brain <laughs> my brain's attitude um but it's it, it was about like rehoming and that hadn't hit me like while I was reading <laughs> it hadn't hit me at all I for me it was like oh you know what's the right thing to do because I'd read it with my partner and that was her analysis whereas afterwards I was like no no it's about like sh- like shout at where your home is like where where someone feels settled and all of that for for I think a theme to fit out like that it I guess I can see where the jigsaw thing comes in where you've been like slotting making sure it making sure it fits in some way um otherwise it wouldn't have that like week and a half longevity maybe that's just me I'm in the same boat because it won't be apparent to me on the first draft either so don't feel bad it's something that (laughs) I'll come back to and come back to and if it if it works like that then that's good I'm I um I sometimes come back to that idea which you which might be familiar to you Leo in Aristotle and people often talk about this the idea that an ending when it arrives should be both surprising and inevitable so I I really aspire to that in creating endings and I think if if you can do that that's hopefully the most the most satisfying type of ending and inevitable in the sense that it flow seems to flow inexorably from the action that's come before not just be kind of tacked on Mm, that it makes sense for all of the characters motivations to have done that and not some random force coming in what are your I say survival mechanisms I mean that loosely in the sense that um it can be anything like what helps you uh maybe during covid or just generally what what makes you wake up actually well you've hit the nail on the head Leo because my secret is sleep (laughs) I I don't sacrifice it um, for the most part and I know a lot of people who seem to do that routinely and at a certain point I just learned not to and I think it's I think it's amazing if you can if you can get enough sleep then think other things just seem to work so uh, yeah so sleep helps me survive uh, I think there's a lot of science that comes out all the time about what sleep does for cellular repair and that's been really important in my life. Um, so I just think, you know, go go for the power nap or get your eight hours. And um, other things for survival is just, I guess, um, do what you got to do. I was non-negotiable on sleep for about two and a half years. And oh, except for and then I started doing night shifts at work can't do it I, I I I had to say start saying no to those because I just couldn't cope with it and then this week I've had two four-hour nights because I just couldn't get my work done it's just horrific I can't cope on no sleep I'm like you it's just not worth it uh, I've taken three days off this week just to catch up <laughs> it's I just need the rest I asked the other producers from the show to send me what they thought their methods of survival were. Um, So here's Esther and Anna Rose talking about theirs. 
Zester. Just responding to Leah's call out. Um, so what does survival mean to me? Great question, Leo, as per usual. Mm, well, if I think about associations with that word, you'll never guess who comes to mind. Bear grills straight away. I think of like extreme weather, extreme climates, kind of Duke of Edinburgh vibes. Not saying that Bear Grylls is Duke of Edinburgh level because he's probably like platinum and I didn't even pass bronze. But that kind of like human in the wilderness, human versus nature vibe, that's the image. I'm not sure that's what survival actually means to me though. In my mind, it means kind of coping, a form of coping, but perhaps a form of coping in an extreme circumstance. I would say that there's going to be an element of that which is not of your design. So when I think of Bear Grylls, I'm like, he's sort of designed that that sitch. It might not always go to plan, but a lot of it is, you know, he's engineering an adventure. Um, but then by default, adventure is sort of like not always doesn't always go to plan and that's part of the part of the the draw um so to what extent do you survive an adventure guess it depends what happens but to me i think survival is kind of an extraordinary form of coping when something hasn't gone to plan or um you find yourself at great personal risk perhaps survival seems something seems quite individual seems like I mean, we hear the phrase survival of the fittest. Something that hasn't quite resonated with me because I just didn't really engage in PE. Hello, this is Anna Rose. And uh, the word survival takes me back to about 10 or 11 because two things happened when I was 10 or 11. One is the Destiny's Child song, Survivor, came out. Absolute banger. Um... And I think that song and that album as a whole really taught me that as a woman, I would be able to cope with anything or deal with anything, survive anything on my own and that I needed uh, no one else around me to look after myself. Uh, And while I, on one hand, um, grew some very staunch independence that perhaps a therapist would say is not particularly healthy um, by listening to Destiny's Child. On the other hand, uh, we used to get sent to this thing called Survivor Survival Camp, um, which is where all the children in my school, when we were, when were kind of 10 to 12, for a couple of days every year, we would be sent to this deserted island that's uh, just in kind of Auckland Harbour, Um, And we would have to fend for ourselves. And so you learn things like how to put up a tent and how to build a fire and how to cook, which is kind of weird that you learn them, actually, because not like no one really teaches you them. I think you. I don't know, maybe we learned them before we went. Anyway, what I learned during that camp is to rely on the community of women around me and some of the women that I went that camp with girls at the time are still my friends to this day um and we all just shared our resources and got on with it and learned that actually you know if we ended up on a deserted island that didn't have a ferry service back to 
Auckland city um, that we could cope. I would say that my best survival tactic is my ability to tell myself stories um, and kind of look at situations objectively as though uh, I'm really just in them to write them down. And the reason that I think this is my best survival tactic, um, even though it's not a particularly practical one, is that it takes away the anxiety of incredibly sticky or dangerous situations. Um, And so I think it's quite normal to have quite an out-of-body experience when uh, you're faced with real-life trouble. Um, But I think my out-of-body experience always writes a happy ending for myself and I'm able to uh, get out of it or have been successful in getting out of situations in the past. Um, Whereas I know that if I kind of let the anxiety of the situation take over... um, it would probably, there are a few stories in my life that I think would have uh, gone slightly different ways. If I'm in a forest in New Zealand, I could probably forage for food and I could probably eat quite happily, uh, like in Hunt for the Wilder People. It's um, a story, I'm sure, based on the life of my father. So I've, I've learned some of those skills. I'm probably not quite as good at foraging in English forests. Thanks so much to Joe Lennon for speaking to me for this episode and uh, for writing the book In the Time of Foxes. Um, it's out in the UK and is published by Scribner. Thanks also to Esther and Anna Rose for sending me their thoughts around the, the theme of survival. Uh, thanks for listening. 